Hey, everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. Year in Review, 1964. Everybody, and welcome back to our episode. Um, if you've been listening to the last episode, you know that we had covered the 1964 Academy Awards. We asked ourselves which picture was best. Was it indeed My Fair Lady? Could it have been Dr. Strangelove? Or was it uh, little known Beckett or Zorba the Greek? And no, the answer uh, may surprise you, but it was Mary Poppins. Go back and listen to that episode. It's very good. But hello, I'm Christian. You knew that. And as always, here's Brett. Hello. Hello, hello. And back with us is our guest host, the one and only Toby. Hello. Hello again. And we're here to talk about six more films that were um, part of 1964. All of them nominated for something, except one. There was one that wasn't nominated, but it was really good anyway. And we're going to talk about some honorable movies, as always. Give our favorites of the year in select categories. And yeah, have a good time. Is there anything you want to say, Brett? Nope. Let's just go ahead and take it away. Cool. Okay. So the first one we have is going to be uh, provided by Toby here. And he's going to say the title when the thing comes up. It's Goldfinger. He actually sang it. Wow. Yeah. Yes. I do. Um, of course, uh, starring Sean Connery. Goldfinger is the third James Bond movie directed by Guy Hamilton. Um, it follows Bond, um, probably one of the most iconic Bond villains. Uh, was it Auric? What is it, his first name? Goldfinger? Yeah, last name Goldfinger. Uh, Goldfinger, uh, who is, of course, trying to contaminate the United States bullion deposit uh, for, at Fort Knox. Um, I just... It's a really classic Bond movie because the action is very, um, very good, but the story is also very good. So it's like, it's a nice balance of action and uh, story. And it's a really classic, like when I think of Bond, Goldfinger is like the standard sort of, like the, the newer Bond movies are like really good, but it's sort of like, when I think of a Bond movie, it's Goldfinger. Um, and Goldfinger is the first blockbuster Bond movie because um, the, the budget of Goldfinger is just as big as like the previous two Bond movies combined. Um, and it made uh, quite a bit more money. And if you adjust the box office for uh, inflation, you uh, it's still one of the highest uh, budget uh, box office for a Bond movie. So it's, you know, it's a real classic. I just really like it. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. It's, I think it's one of the best Bond movies. It's like top two for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because between this and Skyfall, I really like Skyfall, which we've yeah. spoken about mm-hmm. in depth. Um, but Goldfinger, like Toby said, it's pretty exciting. 
the way you're describing it, I sort of picture it as like what you said, the standard for Bond films, because it has the cool gadgets. It has yes. the Aston Martin. It has classic suave Bond, the Bond lady and a villain that's pretty iconic, notorious, and that we still talk about today. And the song, of course, which I introduced when we did this, the Goldfinger oh, yes. song is mm-hmm. like one of the best. Uh, Dame Shirley Bassey uh, sings that song. But no, I really liked it. I have always really liked it too, because I watched this first when it was Bond's 50th anniversary and I binged all of them. Yeah, so every time I watch this, it's pretty much something, I don't know, it's something new to me. I pay attention a lot more and more because a lot of the Bond films they can get, they can lag and they're not that interesting. But it's this one that's like, it's the peak. I can understand why it's considered like a blockbuster of this series. It's definitely worth that title. You know, I really, really like Goldfinger as well. And I really, really like the song. And uh, we don't get into song categories here, but I do that in my personal. And the song Goldfinger does beat any Mary Poppins song by a mile. Really? Yes. Shocking. Wow. I had to think about it. I'm like, you know what? No, I love the Mary Poppins songs, but I love the Goldfinger song. Yeah. It's one of the perfect James Bond songs. Yeah, I have to agree, kind of, because um, you just kind of you can I can hear that in my head the gold the gold mm-hmm. finger. Even without even have, before seeing the movie, I could hear the. I also love how it's introduced. It's shocking. Yeah, I actually don't know. I I don't think I disagree with you. And part of that may just be because like the Mary Poppins songs kind of like cancel each other out in some ways because there's so many of them too. But yeah, it is. I so confession time. And Christian, I don't even know if you know this, which is surprising. But before this, the only James Bond movies I've seen were the Daniel Craig ones. <gasps> yeah. So and, and the first, reason this is your first Sean Connery? Yes. So the reason for that is that I've always said, you know, because I started watching James Bond movies like when Quantum of Solace came out. That was like the first one I saw uh, back in what, like 2008. And I've always said, like, I I don't want to dive into the rest unless I can watch them all like in order and whatnot. And of course, like taking on the task of watching 25 movies in order for me, especially is like, wow, okay. I, I've just never gotten around to it, but this is one that like, I'm glad we picked cause I would have watched it regardless, um, like breaking with that rule. And like, this is the one that I definitely would have done that for because I've, I've just heard so many things about it. And even as someone who does not have experience with James Bond movies, even though I really enjoyed the ones I've seen, um, it was easy to see the influences. And so much of what like was iconic, even though I hadn't seen the movie before, stuck out to me. Like you've got uh, the line, like, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. You've got odd job throwing the bowler uh, and, you know, cutting off the head of the statue um, that the, the lady covered in gold um, who had just been killed. And all of that is stuff that like, even if you're not very familiar with Bond, I think if you're a movie follower especially a cinephile you've probably seen somewhere before um especially in the classic film austin powers in gold member yes yes that's true um gosh that that's a flat i haven't seen that one in forever um but yeah no i i really enjoyed it a lot i i think this is just 
classic fun action spy thriller espionage cinema. Like it's well shot. The sound design is terrific. I think the visual effects are amazing as well, you know, especially for that time and everything that they put into it. Um, Sean Connery, like you said, is so suave and like you can see why for so many people, he's their favorite Bond to this day um, because he kind of makes the role and is funny, but also has that serious kind of tone to him. Um, The the film. Oh, go go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that even the plot of what Goldfinger wants to do and get into the the gold depository, it's somewhat believable because I'm sure there are people yeah. out there who try to evade Fort Knox because this is a true place, Fort Knox, with their gold depository. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not in the same way. But. Yeah, I, there are certainly aspects that might come off as a little goofy at times, but I think that's kind of the joy of it too. Like it it wouldn't be as fun if it didn't go all out and do some of that. Um, but no, I really enjoy it. You've got, uh, you know, Obviously, you know, the James Bond franchise is like one of those things that like the women, the roles they play is kind of interesting and a little bit shady at times. And there's some of that here, too, but also kind of iconic and, you know, the characters that appear here. Um, and like you said, Christian, and, and I, an iconic villain, I would say two iconic villains, because I, I think Odd Job is one of the most, you know, yeah. popularized ones, too. Like, I, I've seen so many things about Odd Job as well. So, um Really good stuff. Really, you know, nice cast they put together for this. And I don't know if you're going to watch a spy movie that like goes by in a flash and is enjoyable for every single second, this is a great one to go for. Also, don't forget it has like one of the most iconic Bond women names as well. Yes. And it's pushy galore. <laughs> I wonder if you're going to break up the Sean Connery accent for that. Played by Honor Blackman, who I actually believe just passed away last year. Oh, along with Sean Connery, because Sean Connery uh, passed away, too. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that she is other than I mean, because her and Bond, of course, get together because why not? It's one of those, you know, Bond has a woman in bed somehow. She's pretty uh, she's pretty heroic herself, too, because she owns her. What is it like the flying circus Mm -hmm. or whatever circus? Yeah, Yeah, the flying circus. And she's a badass to him. And she's like, "Eh, you know what? I'm not going to take you. You're not like you're not going to be affected by me. And then, yeah. Yeah. But they work together. Right. In more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> I, can I I kept wondering when she was going to show up because she's actually like, kind of like the third Bond girl in the movie. Because right. You've got the two Masterson sisters that show up first. And when the second one shows up, I'm like, oh, here comes Pussy Galore. And it's like, oh no, we got to wait even further. But they all kind of have their own ways that they work out. So um but yeah this was this did receive an oscar nom and even a win toby do you want to go over that there so it did get nominated for and win best sound effects yeah oh okay one yeah i i I think this is like the i i don't know somebody correct me but it feels like this would be the last bomb movie to win an oscar until skyfall I think you're probably right because I know none of the songs that were nominated, like "Live and Let Die." Yeah, that's I, none of those will ever won. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I remember that being a narrative oh, okay. too, or maybe not. Uh, looks like Thunderball would win two years later. Yeah, it would, oh. also, it would win visual effects, but until Guy Fall. Yeah, 
So only two. So basically Bond won back to back and then Skyfall. So it was quite a bit. Isn't it wild that only one Bond song has won best original song? Right. <clears throat> like I didn't even know. Oh, two. Was there one before? Oh, Goldfinger? the Spectre. Oh, oh, I forgot that one. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> forgot about that one. And then no. more, more than likely the next one. Yeah, the next one's going to win. I, I would be shocked if it lost. But yeah, it goes that long without winning and then it's going to win three in a row. So most likely. But I don't know. I And maybe it's just because I saw Skyfall first, but I personally prefer Skyfall a little bit more. But this one is one that I... It's going to be tough to top this one too, as I when I do eventually go through the Bond films because it's so exciting from start to finish. I think it's too. It's based on who your Bond is because if you categorize them by who the Bond is, mm -hmm. this is probably one of the better ones of the Connery era, and then you can have Skyfall being the better one of the Daniel Craig era, and then except for like George Lazenby and Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. I say George Lazenby here and did one movie. <laughs> right. Shut up, Christian. <laughs> but no really good really fun spy thriller to check out if you're interested in that um yeah any further thoughts on goldfinger if you are interested in watching it you don't have to watch pretty much any of them to get the plot of the movie because it's not a continuation true you can just like jump right on in just know he's james bond all right so our next film is one that i selected um it is the first film, I believe, that the Beatles appeared in um, playing themselves, and it is A Hard Day's Night to go along with the album of the same name that came out in that year. Um, so this is, I mean, I think of A Hard Day's Night as just a music hangout movie starring the Beatles. I, I think that's pretty much what it is. Um, it starts with them showing up in London and trying to board a train, and they've got this huge horde of fans chasing after them. They're trying to hide and whatnot. And it has a very comic nature from the start. Like they're hiding in places. They're like, they have the newspaper gag going. They're tripping over themselves. Um, basically they get on this train and, and it's about them going to London to appear on a uh, television concert special, something that they were known for doing. They did all the time, but there are a lot of hijinks and whatnot that occur as a result. Um, the Beatles, you know, in this film, all four of them are like pretty wacky, pretty goofy guys. They're kind of just like, you know, um, young guys that like to hang out and do what they want to do and kind of, you know, uh, participate in tomfoolery. And they're joined by who is uh, apparently Paul McCartney's grandfather, uh, who's played by Wilfred Bramble or Brambell. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Um, but he's he's also pretty mischievous himself he's basically trying to profit from the Beatles by being connected to them and when he first shows up I couldn't tell if Paul was joking or not about him being his grandfather but apparently he actually is and he kind of plays a role in the film as well but a lot of stuff happens to each of them um the grandfather gets into some trouble uh Ringo kind of has his own select storyline where he goes out and like ends up getting arrested really randomly at you know in this walk through London um, which is kind of nice that he kind of gets his own thing because I feel like Ringo is considered by many to be one of the, you know, least significant of the Beatles, uh, quartet. So, because he, he didn't do as much of the, the songwriting and, and singing as the other three. So, um, 
I have a lot of fun with this. I, I think it's really funny. I also like, I'm a big Beatles fan. I mean, I'm not like huge where I like, I have all their albums memorized and whatnot, but I really like them. I've listened to all their stuff and to see them like portraying themselves this way and being this really like kind of funny group of just, you know, guys who want to hang out and whatnot and aren't all that concerned about the music all the time. I find it really fun um, to portray them in that way. And it's filmed in black and white. It kind of comes off as an indie film. It's almost like a cinema verite documentary in some ways, but you can tell that it's definitely scripted in a lot of ways too. Um, so I have fun with it. I, I don't know if you're not a fan of the Beatles or whatnot, then I don't think you'll get as much out of it. Um, I think that knowing who they are and their personas a little bit definitely helps, or at least getting to see what they do here. But it's fun. It, it's really short. It's like an hour and 27 minutes, you know, black and white 1960s movie. It definitely has some of those qualities. You could tell it's from the 60s. Um, and I just think it's a lot of fun. Well, <clears throat> I didn't care for it. Uh, I know. Brett asked yeah, me about no. the Beatles. I mean, I like their songs. I wouldn't call myself a fan. Totally, whatever. I really wish that this was just a concert film instead of one with a narrative to it because it would have been, I don't know, it would have probably, it would have introduced them much, much better to American audiences, especially like the worrisome American parents who would then be afraid of them once they came over. I mean, this, uh, sure, it's a good introduction to them, but the story just, it didn't do anything for me. I like the song moments because I knew these songs, I could hum along with them, but I don't know. I didn't find anything funny in this because it's supposed to be somewhat of a comedy. I was just looking at them. Toby was like, none of them are really attractive, are they? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's fine. It's a movie. It exists. You can have fun with it. It is a hangout movie, and I don't like those kind of movies that much. So, yeah. Oops. See, I can actually see why why you don't like it. Until you said it should be a concert movie. That I very much disagree with. But I am, I'm also good. not a fan of concert movies because I don't know. I, I'd rather it do something different. Um, Could just, you imagine if it was just like a documentary of them getting ready for like a big concert in London and then filming that? It would have been interesting. Now, if the primary portion of the documentary was them before the concert getting ready and stuff, that I could see. But if it was primarily just the concert, I'd be like, no, no, not for me. But Concert films are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Toby, what'd you think? Pretty similar to Christian. I mean, it's worth it because some of the I mean, the songs are nice, of course. I mean, it's the Beatles. Uh, so it's worth listening to that for that. But I just didn't really enjoy this structure of it, I guess. Is this a musical? I can't tell because, like, all the songs are kind of like diegetically in the film. Right. It's not like they're ever breaking out into song or anything that I can remember. It's like a movie with music more so than a musical. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel. Like you said, because they're not like, they're not running and they're singing like, help, I need some butt. Yeah. They're just like, you can see them running and you can hear the music that nobody else can hear. Right. Wow. Right. I, 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 it is a, it's a musical in the sense that it has music in it, mm -hmm. but it's not like one of the pure musicals, like what we'll be talking about later in this. Yeah. I agree. I think the one time where it might seem a little bit more like that is when they're on the train because the instruments like show up from out of nowhere and they right. kind of really start playing. But even then you, you can tell that they're, I don't know, they're performing. So 
I will say at least they're like decent actors. Yeah, I think so too. I really like Wilfred Bramble in this too. Like I, I think he's really funny and hilarious. And I, I just think like his facial expressions kind of, it's, it's kind of weird to throw him in as one of the main characters, but I, I think he adds something to it to give it a little bit more of a plot than it would normally have. But no, I'm actually not too surprised. So can we read this fun fact that Toby just found. Go for it. Okay. United Artists executives didn't really care about the movie itself. Ha ha, sing. They were mainly interested in exploiting a legal loophole which would allow them to distribute the lucrative soundtrack album, which I mean. Oh. Uh, in fact, they fully expected to lose money on this with a final cost of about $500,000 and a box office of $8 million in the first week. This is among the most profitable movies of all time. That's weird. The Beatles have been around for like, I want to say three years at this point. Why did they think it would be a box office bomb? That's, I don't Wrong. know. Interesting. I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, how do you like market a movie like that, I guess? It's also kind of, it's affordable too. If you can't get a ticket to one of their concerts, you just go see a movie for much, much cheaper and you have mm -hmm. the guarantee of getting in. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. I do think it's funny, like how they they exist as this group, but also like the film individualizes them. And that's even then the casting. Like I'm looking at the cast listing here from um, IMDb. And this is the way I, I'm pretty sure it appears in the title cards for the film as well. But number one on the cast is the Beatles. And then it lists them all individually, which is kind of interesting. So I like seeing um, uh, John Lennon in this only because I'm always familiar with him just from the later period of his life. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't have the mental image of what he looks like when he's young. Yeah, I just get like the, I just get the '70s era version of him with the long hair and the glasses with Yoko. Uh -huh. That's it. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, this was you know the first of a number of films they did. They 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 did Help. They did um, you know like contrast like Magical Mystery Tour. They did Yellow Submarine and whatnot too. And so, and Peter Jackson is doing a documentary about them right now which I'm really fascinated to see. Cause I know Ron Howard has done one. I haven't seen it yet. Um, you know, it, it's Ron Howard, but um, I'm really interested to see Peter Jackson's. So also they have Oscars, which I find is that's the, that's the funnest of fun fact. <laughs> the Beatles, all four of them are Academy award winners. Yeah, that is interesting. Not for this, like, but for another movie that they did in the seventies. Yeah, they want. Well, was that for Let It Be? Yeah, it's yeah. like best sound. It's like best sound adaptation, best music score adaptation. But yeah, they technically have Academy Awards. That's really interesting. But yeah, this one did get some Oscars love. Uh, it did receive two nominations uh, for original screenplay and for the score. Um, so yeah, it did get some recognition at the Oscars. Didn't win either of them though. So that the screenplay nomination is kind of radical in its sense, because like I was saying, the adults and parents were fearful of the Beatles and that the counterculture that was coming up of the sixties and to have a screenplay nomination with such like a conservative group as the Oscars. Right. Now it's like their way of thinking is changing too. It's, it's the little moments. Yeah. They get there sometimes. It's also really interesting because like I said, there are, there are a lot of scenes in the movie where you can tell they're definitely scripted, especially in the creation of what there is for a plot. But like a lot of it also just feels so improvised too. 
Like it right. feels like they're just like watching them. They're just hanging out. So it's interesting in that way too. Yeah. Any further thoughts on a hard day's night before we move on to our next one? All right, Christian, I believe you've got our next two. So go ahead and take us away. Okay. So our first one that I'm going to be introducing is a semi-spiritual sequel to a film that we've already discussed on one of our episodes back in 1962, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. This is the, like I said, it's like a quasi follow-up. It is Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And it also stars Betty Davis. And in this, she plays Charlotte Hollis, who is a Southern belle. When she's younger, she is accused of killing her beau, who was played by Bruce Dern. Uh, yeah, interesting there, seeing like a young Bruce Dern. But the way that he dies is he's beheaded, which is actually going to come up in another movie. So weird connection there. Uh, anyway, so Charlotte... She's uh, then becomes a recluse for the rest of her life as she gets older. Like I said, played by Betty Davis. The city wants to build a highway through her property. She lives on a plantation in the South. And so she brings her cousin, Miriam Deering, who's played by Olivia de Havilland. They were best friends, Olivia and Betty at the time. But there's another story there, but we'll get to that. Uh, to help her out, Joseph Cotton is also with Olivia. They're going to help her out somehow get this highway to divert itself. But they're also sort of in this for shady dealings because Betty has a lot of money in this from her dad. The only child, she has some inheritance to her. And she also is living with a, I would say it's a, it's a friend slash helper, Velma Crother, played by Agnes Moorhead. And they sort of get suspicious of cousin Miriam and her you know, her true motives on coming here. It's like, sure, she'll come here to help us, but is there something else? And strange things start happening around the house that sort of trigger Betty's, or uh, excuse me, Charlotte's memories into what happened with her beau. She starts seeing his face and his head and hearing things. And slowly she, quote unquote, descends into madness. But the movie asks, is she really descending into madness or is there something ulterior about it? So I really like this film. I didn't think that I liked it the first couple times I saw it, but watching it on this one, especially after being like a huge Baby Jane fan and Betty Davis fan, it's like, yes, this is actually really, really good. She's really great in this Betty Davis. I also really love Olivia de Havilland and Agnes Moorhead. Like Agnes Moorhead, Agnes Moorhead gives a really good performance. And there's one scene where she's trying to help Davis. I won't spoil how she's trying to help her because it's, it's pretty important to the plot. Um, but she has a big old argument with Olivia's character and that's like her, the pinnacle of her little performance there, but, uh, great cinematography in this too. It's black and white. You really feel like you are in the Southern bayous there mm -hmm. on a hot steaming nights, <laughs> a lot of shaded goings ons. And again, we don't get into like personal cinematography winners, but this is my personal cinematography winner for black and white. I do divide them during this time, black and white in color. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. The little story I do want to say is um, Joan Crawford was supposed to be in this as Miriam, cousin Miriam. And there was just a lot of issues, I guess, if most likely with Betty once again from the Baby Jane era. And Joan did film some scenes because she is technically in one scene in this film. Right? Yes. Yeah, he knows. When oh. Miriam is pulling up in the taxi, the wide shot of 
the person in the taxi, that's Joan Crawford. Supposedly you can see her, but she's like wearing glasses and dark clothing. So you can't really tell it's her, but it's her. Interesting. So she at least filmed a little bit of it, but then ultimately left. So that's why you can also say this is a quasi follow-up to Baby Jane in the sense that they would have been together once again, but instead you got Olivia. And Olivia and Betty got along because they were pretty good friends for their mm. whole lives. And I, I really love Joan Crawford, obviously, but I really feel like Olivia de Havilland, I love her in this because it's something so different for her. And it's, yeah. I feel like it's better. I mean, I feel like it's better than if it were Joan. And I I feel crazy saying that, but <laughs> it's a it's a definitely against type character for Olivia. And she does it mm. so well. Yeah, because we've only seen her as good girl, gone with the wind, to each his own, even in the airs, because that mm-hmm. that's the news we've seen of her and plus some others. But in this, she gets to play like a real, you know, right. manipulative biosh. <laughs> I agree completely. Yeah. I because I was thinking the same thing, too, because I did read that. Joan was supposed to be in this. I didn't know that uh, you could actually technically see her in the movie, but I thought so because I also really love I I love Joan Crawford and pretty much everything I've seen her in. But yeah, Olivia playing against type is so fascinating because uh, she does it so well. It's like gosh, she should have been doing like, roles like this all the time. This is amazing. Uh, but that's also part of the why I think it's so effective. Um, we'll get to supporting you know performances this year, but let's just say she is very high on my list. Um, and you could argue maybe you lead supporting. It's kind of tough, but I think like, you know, Christian, we've talked about this. I think she's supporting to Betty as well. Um, I love every time we do a movie with like Betty Davis or Joan Crawford or something like that. Cause there's always a story that comes along with it. Um, but yeah, this one, I, I, I really enjoyed this as well. I definitely didn't enjoy it. You no, know, near as much as baby Jane, but baby Jane is, a masterpiece so um i don't really i don't dock it for that but yeah the, the cast the ensemble is possibly the best of the year um obviously you know betty olivia you got joseph cotton in there um like you said agnes moorhead you got mary astor um which i believe was her final film role um was it, it it's brief role. i it might have been it's what it's probably near the end there but I read something about it, um, but yeah, she's in there. Like you said, a young Bruce Dern. I mean, aside from Bruce Dern, this cast is mainly people who had kind of their biggest heyday in previous decades. So it's kind of see them all cool to see them all come together in this really like really subversive movie. Um, I was kind of surprised by the opening by how violent it was and like bloody. Uh, because it's just not something I normally expect from a film of this time period. And I really appreciated it for that. Um, by the, the opening scene, the opening sequence is just phenomenal. Um, just a fantastic intro to the movie. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the beginning, the finale is fantastic and the middle is really good too. It all kind of works together and how it all transitions. And we get, we just get kind of close to Betty Davis's character in a weird way. It's almost like, I'm starting to feel for you, but I'm keeping it at arm's distance because I still don't know what's going on with you. Like there's mm-hmm. something here that's not clear. Um, but Robert Aldrich is a great director too. He obviously did Baby Jane. He did a movie I love called Kiss Me Deadly. Um, he was he was such a phenomenal and subversive filmmaker to do movies like this um, at this time that you know you don't really see many of. It's a it's definitely a, a horror film, psychological horror. It's got the 
you know, the bloodiness aspect of it too, it, you know, it acts murders and things like that. And, or cleaver murders, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's really good. And like you said, the cinematography, this, this would get a lot of personal nominations because it, it's really well on the surface with the screenplay and everything, but also the technical aspects, the cinematography is great. Lots of great supporting performances and it's really good all around. Also the mm-hmm. song, the song, it just like, Song's weird. It's weird. It's creepy, but like it, 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 it's, it's that southern, it's that southern gothic feel to it. Yeah, it fits the movie really well. Right. I mean, I have to agree. I really like this too. Um, I'm a big Baby Jane fan too. Obviously, it's a masterpiece, like you said. Um, I really feel like like this doesn't quite reach the level of Baby Jane, but it's like it's so great how um, it has the more bloody gory kind of things like you said and it's just the right amount it's not like overdone and betty she's always great but i mean it's another one of her like all-time kind of great performances i just yeah i really liked it this time i didn't like it as much the first time but this time there was something about it it ages well every time you watch it yes Yeah, it's interesting you both kind of mentioned that. You weren't big fans the first time that it got better. Um, I also, I, I'm pretty sure this is the first Olivia de Havilland movie we've talked about since she passed away last year. Um, but yeah, yeah, she was like one of the one of the last of like the classic, really old time classical Hollywood actresses um, and performers. So um, this is just one of those testaments to how great she was as well. Christian, do you want to go over uh, the nominations for this film? Yes. All right. So Agnes Moorhead got a supporting actress nomination. This is also nominated for art direction, black and white, cinematography, black and white, which it should have won, costume design, black and white, film editing, music score, which was, quote, substantially original, and for Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte original song. That means that it, what is that? Seven awards, no wins, no best picture nomination. Yeah, that's kind of weird with all those. I feel like it could have gotten in with a bigger lineup. Yeah, I think so too. I almost wonder if this is just one where like, we're like, we like it enough to give you all these nominations, but it's it's a bit too subversive for us to put in best picture. Yeah, too much for us. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, it's not like they sit around a round table discussing this, but that might be what voters were kind of thinking. So, but yeah, good horror from there, good psychological horror, good performances. Um, any further thoughts on Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte? Definitely check it out. Check it out after you watch Baby Jane, because watch mm-hmm. Baby Jane, damn it. Yes, watch Baby Jane. But when you watch Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, I wouldn't like. It's like a spiritual sequel, but like it's a different type of me. I think the reason I didn't like it the first time was because I was comparing it too much to baby Jane. It's yeah. definitely good on its own. Yeah. That's a good point. And we brought this up when we did baby Jane, but if you watch feud, there is an episode dedicated to the making of this movie. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Cause it shows how Joan was there and then she left. Oh, okay. Fascinating. All right. Well, Christian, you have got our next film as well. So go ahead and take us away there. Okay. So the next one, I whenever we could do these podcasts, if 
need be, I try to pick one that I haven't seen before, but I really want to. So this is one that I had not seen before and I really ended up liking it. So good job for me. But it is marriage Italian style. And it is an Italian film directed by Vittorio De Sica. De Sica? De Sica. De Sica. Okay. De Sica. And it stars the one and only, the lovely, and our good friend Zay's uh, quote-unquote mother, <laughs> Sophia Loren. And uh, another Italian actor who's pretty famous and actually the year before made what is sometimes considered one of the best Italian films, Marcello Mastroianni. I got to say this right. Mastroianni. Nice. Thank you. So it tells the story of these two. Uh, Marcello plays Domenico. And he falls in love with a 17-year-old, quote-unquote, Sophia Loren character. And she works in a brothel, so she is a lady of the evening. But they meet when Italy's being bombed during World War II. And the film goes with their... um, It's more so a love affair than it is anything else. But the film starts out when she is dying, or so it appears that she is dying. And it flashes back on the memories of meeting one another falling in love, talking about their lives, what they want to do, all the romance that they've ever had. And it spans 22 years of this and the many flings that he has had because he is a, you know, pretty charming Italian man with his three-piece suits in every (sighs) single scene. And, And then we get back to the fact that she is dying and they end up marrying, Italian style. And from there, it pretty much becomes a interesting marriage i won't say if she lives or dies but some things happen (laughs) and it's uh it's very interesting okay you probably understand from my little i don't know if she lives or dies she (laughs) lives because she is faking it only to get his last name for her children that she has but what's that but she doesn't know about that she doesn't know about yeah uh, which he doesn't know about and uh they really don't know that their mother is her but it is a, yeah, it's a lot of madcapness. I definitely think this is an Italian version of like a screwball comedy. Like I said, I really, really enjoyed it. Sophia is phenomenal in this. And I have only seen her in a couple of American movies and two women, which she won her Oscar for a couple of years previous to this. But she was nominated for an Oscar for this. Well-deserved one. Marcelo is also pretty good in this. It's, I mean, they have great chemistry together. They've made a bunch of movies together as couples. One, which I hope when we do a later podcast this year, I actually want to pick for a bonus feature. Uh, but yeah, this is a good film. And if you have Canopy, if you have Canopy through your local library, that's where you can find it. And it is well mm. worth it. Like I am actually pretty stunned and I don't know why, but I am stunned that I really love this film. Like it is hilarious. It's touching and it's like, it's a game of cat and mouse almost. And I love me a screwball comedy, so maybe that's why. What say you two? Yeah. I mean, I have to agree. Sophia Loren is pretty great in it. When she like um, reveals to him about uh, after they get married, it's like one of the best uh, scenes in the movie. And I'm like sitting there like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. When she just pops out of the curtain. Yep. <laughs> yeah. When I, when I was going in to watch this movie, I, I had two misconceptions about this movie. One is I just assumed this was a sequel to Divorce Italian Style, 
which came out two years previously. And I watched for our previous podcast on that. And I enjoyed, but I didn't think it was great. And two, I, I didn't know this was directed by Vittorio De Sica, who has directed truly three of my favorite all-time movies during the Italian neorealist um, period. Um, the best of them being Bicycle Thieves. And so this is kind of like his post-neorealism um, career, which is like very different, but you can also see some of his qualities coming through, one of which being like portraying his, in this case, main character being Lorenz as, uh, you know, someone who is like not at the top of society um, or, or shunned in some way. I really... Italian films from this era have just for the time really good like character development and portrayals for sex workers. Um, Cause we watched Mama Roma too. And that was a movie that I was like kind of so, so on, but I did like Mama Roma in it. Um, and Anna Magnani. So um, once again, you know, Sophia Loren here, I like you two said, I think she's phenomenal. She does so many different things with this performance while also remaining true to the character. Like when we first meet her, she's this kind of like, you know, uh, she's kind of exuberant. She's like, Hey, remember me and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to be in love. And then when, you know, she's feigning illness and then wakes up, she's just like, you know, she, she literally says like, fuck you. Yeah. And that, you know, and like, she's so angry and it's just perfect. And then later on, she's more like, kind of like, I, I don't know, restrained and somber when they connect again. Um, but now she's, she has what she wants. She's, she's with her children, they, you know, and whatnot. And so I really enjoyed her character and especially her performance. And as well as Marcella Mastroianni too, um, who was also in Divorce Italian Style, which is why I thought it was a sequel. But um, yeah, he was, you know, one of the great Italian, you know, popular Italian actors at this time as well. And I think they make a phenomenal team it's almost kind of like my fair lady in that like, he is just a complete douchebag to her for the entire movie for the, you know, until near the end. When we watched this, I literally described it as a my fair lady situation. And it was a scene where they're going to the racetrack and she's dressed in a, like a more floral summer dress. He's like, you need to dress up a little bit differently. Let's go in and see what you got. Cause I want to make you more presentable to the world. Right. And to me, I, Obviously, I was so, so on My Fair Lady. I, I love this movie. I, I think it's great. I think this screenplay is phenomenal. I think it's funny. It, you said, it, like you said, it's got those screwball comedy elements to it, but it's also got plenty of drama and, you know, um, you know kind of more heavy stuff as well. Um, but it really, it, it, it comes down to, I think, those two performances, especially Lorraine and the way it's, it, it's shot and directed. Um, and the way the story is told, because it's told in flashbacks a lot of the time. Um, they kind of go back and forth between the event where she's feigning illness and going back to how they got here. And I think that works so effectively. I think their relationship, as toxic as it is, is so interesting. Um, and the ending, you can understand why the ending ends the way it does, um, even though it, it seems kind of offhand for Mastroianni's character especially so great stuff I, I love Italian films um you know this is the era uh, you know where Fellini was you know kind of near his height making eight and a half and there's a lot of good stuff coming out of Italy at this time and this is certainly one of them right it's good too to see something different from um the Sika that isn't totally World War II related you know yeah because Bicycle Thieves is really really I mean 
bicycle thieves, of course. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's nice to see him do something different here. Also, I want to say just how beautiful Sophia Loren is in this. Like, every, even when she's on the deathbed, <laughs> that woman got the look. She's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was nice to see, and just think about watching this in 2021, you know, a few months after she did appear in a movie, um, you know, uh, The Life Ahead. And, you know, it, it's nice to see her still, you know, doing things like that and whatnot. And so, yeah, still working. Uh, Christian, do you want to go over the Oscar noms for this film? Okay, so like I said, Sophia got a nomination for Best Actress. And then I guess in the next year, so for 1965, because release dates for uh, international features were just so wacky back in the day, it got a foreign language nomination. But again, for 1965, not for 64. Yeah. However, Sophia did make another movie in 64 that ended up winning. So she had a good year, I guess. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so um, we'll have another another film coming up, another international film that kind of had a wacky release date thing as well. But for now, any further thoughts on Marriage Italian Style? Definitely worthwhile. And like I said, if you have Canopy through your local library, it's on there. And yeah. Yeah. Go, go watch this on Canopy and then like just choose a film from the thumbnail on the right because they always have suggestions when you watch a movie on Canopy. And I looked at like some of the ones that were over there and there's a lot of really good movies on there that you could check out um, that are related to this. So, hmm. yeah. Um, perfect. So let's move on to our next film, which this is one Toby picks. So Toby, take us away here. Uh, my next pick is Straight Jackets, directed by William Castle. And actually written by Robert Block, who is, of course, the author of the book Psycho. It's a pretty interesting little fact. Um, it, of course, stars Joan Crawford um, as Lucy Harbin, who was a woman committed to a psychiatric hospital after decapitating her husband and his mistress after catching them in bed. Um, and her daughter uh, saw that, actually. And her daughter is actually Diane Baker, who is... Senator Ruth Martin in The Silence of the Lambs. Pretty little, uh, fun little fact. Ah, look at Brett's face. <laughs> yes. Did not know that. Yes, that's who she is. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so Lucy's sent to the hospital, and then uh, 20 years later, uh, she's released for some reason. Um, you know, and she uh, starts living with her brother, his wife, and her daughter. Um, and then strange things start to happen around her, and uh, she starts getting triggered by certain events and there's uh, one scene where she uh, she hallucinates and it's pretty uh, trippy and like it's a very campy movie and I just and Joan is like I said before I really love Joan and she's just great in this it's it's uh, more of a guilty pleasure movie it's just so like it's just fun to have be scared by it and it's kind of hilarious at times because uh, it's ridiculous, but yeah, I wish he did more like movies like this, or even like, like harkening back to Hush, 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 Sweet Charlotte, you kind of get these two aging actresses who um, at the time, it's like these 
in Hollywood, you don't get a lot of these movies where you have like aging actresses who are like leads and um, I, I just wish they had done more like these. These both of these. The psycho biddies. Yes. Psycho biddies, yeah. And Baby Jane and yeah. Just so good. I want to hear Brett's opinion first because <laughs> I've never seen this. I thought it was good. I I, I really enjoyed just sitting and, and being with it because it is it is kind of ridiculous and it, it's so campy and and fun and it's one of those where like even though i i wouldn't put it as one of the best movies of the year but i also think like it would be so much worse if they had tried to make it like a serious thing like it it, it has to be camp and it has to be kind of out there um that doesn't mean it doesn't have like it, it's like really just straight up good qualities to it um I think Joan Crawford is excellent here. Uh, I really just like, it was so weird how easy it was for me to sympathize with her character because you watch what she does in the early scenes and then it's like, oh God, I feel for it. And part of that is because I, I found the film, like the big reveal kind of predictable. Not that it, I, I don't, I don't, you know, a lot of films, I don't judge them if they're predictable. I, I just think that's how it goes sometimes. So I don't damn it for that. But I think that's part of the reason why I found it Okay, spoiler alert, I'm not going to say what happens, but it found it made it easier for me to like empathize with Crawford's character. And I, I think I had some fun with that to see if I would end up being wrong and like, oh, she's actually like pretty awful or, or if it's completely something unexpected. Um, but she's great here. Once again, like Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, it is violence and it has like really like funny but like great effects to it you know too and and it, it works better that way i think because of it um yeah definitely an unexpected axe murderer type of film there's a mask in this film that is like creepy as hell uh it just like oh it, it gave me chills it bugged me when i saw it um I was like wait a minute what is that and i terrifying. <laughs> yeah i i didn't put together that robert block wrote this that makes complete sense when you think about psycho and, and this and whatnot um but i know that you know william castle you know did some films like this and it makes me interested to hopefully get some more of his stuff one of these days and whatnot too because it's a it's a lot of fun I, I had a good time with it yeah robert block writes another one for william castle i think in this it's like the same year or close to it that sounds interesting which i found out on last night so i didn't get to watch it yet but interesting I've always liked this too because I always seem to end up watching this when it's on TCM and I always seem to watch it on like a Saturday morning and afternoon. So it was like a Saturday morning cartoon situation. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I I really like it. I really like Joan in this. She's she's good in these types of roles as she ages in her career because obviously she was known for her pretty dramatic stuff. And then you get to the baby Jane era. And from here, it's getting to the more bizarre roles that she chose before she retired. But yeah, I don't know. It's good. Um, good performance. William Castle, I always like his stuff, his shtick. Uh, House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, we got this now. I'm not sure exactly what the whole shtick that he did for theaters was. Because like for House on Haunted Hill, a skeleton came out. Oh, nice. I'm sure we'll find it. But yeah. One of my favorite parts of this movie is the Columbia logo at the end. Yes. <laughs> With her head off. Yeah, yeah, her head is just like by her feet. That is amazing. That's hilarious. I like when studios pander to us. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, this one's 
really fun a lot of really good so it also is a pretty simple movie to get um to like make and stuff because it's only set in really one location it's like the farmhouse the the guest house of the farmhouse and that's it you know i guess it, it's more of her paranoia being in such like a secluded spot and all these memories flooding back to her right lucy harper took an axe took an axe <laughs> toby go ahead I was going to say, this is the first movie of Lee Majors, um, too. I guess he, like, took the stage name Lee Majors because Joan Crawford had a difficulty saying his name. Uh, Harvey Lee uh, Urey. It's kind of a fun fact. Oh. To any of our old listeners out there, or if you're Christian, Lee Majors, of course, the $6 million man. Oh. Did you? Okay, I guess because I figured you two wouldn't know who Lee Majors was. I didn't know. I've, I've never okay. watched Made yeah. man. So, and I'm just an old soul, I guess. <laughs> that is our, interesting, though. We just we gained the old audience and lost the youth audience. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, um, this is the one film we discussed that did not get any Oscar nom- nominations. So, um, I that for some reason that doesn't seem to happen with us very often. We seem to, to choose a lot that don't get them. But yeah, this one wish it would have gotten at least a couple um i don't know for me it also felt really short too like i was looking at it it was like an hour and 33 minutes and to me it didn't feel much longer than an hour so it 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 has a really good pace to it as well but that's like important because for theater goers you don't want a super long dragged out psycho movie you know yeah you got to get to the main crux of this thing oh yeah get what you're coming for right yeah, very good pick there. Um, any further thoughts on Straight Jacket? Check it out. It's definitely worth watching. That's about it. Absolutely. And uh, also, if you end up buying it, there's a second film called Berserk that's alongside of it, also with Joan Crawford. If you want more psycho bitty Joan, I guess. I just saw the poster for that one on IMDb, and I'm like, that one sounds good too. So Interesting. It's... It's fine. We got the Joan Crawford expert over here. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Very nice. And our next film is going to be presented by Brett, and he's going to sing it all in French. <laughs> so, take it away. Absolutely not. No. Uh, but this is uh, our, our final film. Um, this is a film I saw three or four years ago and absolutely fell in love with. um, And it completely held up for me. Thank goodness. It is the umbrellas of Cherbourg. Um, This is a film from Jacques Demy, who was a a really interesting and colorful um, uh, French director. Uh, This is a musical that like Chris said, it is completely sung all the way through all the dialogue is um, in, in rhythm and in tune. Um, and so there's there's no just regular spoken dialogue throughout the thing. Um, so that might take a, a little bit to get used to. The first time I watched it, it took me like a good five minutes or so to be like, oh, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm with this. Um, this is another short film. It's like an hour and a half. But this is a story of a young woman named uh, Genevieve who lives in, in Cherbourg. Um, and she runs like a um, upholstery and an umbrella shop with her mom there. Uh, she is dating Guy, who's played by Nino Castelnuovo. I hope I'm saying that correctly. 
Um, so they're young lovers. I think she's like 17 and he's like 20 or 21. Um, yeah, another one of those cases, but, uh, they are like just completely in love. They spend their, their nights going out to the, to the movies and doing all this fun stuff together, even though her mother is very much, very much would not approve. Um, but they want to get married. They want to live their life together. They want to tie the knots and try to convince her mother that that's what they should do. But things are thrown into a loop when, um, when Guy is enlisted to fight in the French-Algerian War. Um, so it's really interesting that that was a war that ended, I want to say, like two years before this was released. So the film is very timely in that way and that war and um, its impact on you know the citizens there. Shortly after Guy leaves, we find out that Genevieve is pregnant with his child. So got something going on there. Um, she has another guy who comes to the shop and tries to romance her. And so she is left with this question of, do I wait for guy or do I go marry this guy who can, this new guy who can support me because he's like rich and whatnot. So her mom, we can guess what she wants her to do. She wants her to go and marry this new guy who I think is Roland is his name. Um, and so yeah, it goes from there. Things get complicated when guy does return. And so I think the film is just a really fascinating look on love and young love in particular and how, our love shifts over time and how like, you know, these two to me are, are very much in love and it feels like they're going to be together forever. Things don't exactly go that way, but that's okay. There is still love there. They have love for other people instead. Um, and I just love how it all comes about. But I, I think most of all, I think the film is just absolutely gorgeous. It's one of the most, just the prettiest films I've ever seen from its color palette, from the production design. None of the walls in like any of these places are like just off-white walls. They are all colorful in some way. And I love the way it's constructed that way. Um, I think the singing throughout becomes beautiful. It's really beautiful, even if you can't, you know, just distinguish between some of the quote-unquote songs. Um, but I also really love Catherine Deneuve here. I think, you know, she gives a really good performance. I also really like... I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but it's like Marielle Perry, who plays Guy's um, aunt. I believe it's his aunt, um, who he lives with and is kind of like on her deathbed, basically, for a lot of the film. She gives a really good performance, too. But this is lovely. It's a lovely musical. Aside from The Wizard of Oz, it is my favorite musical of all time. So it holds a really you know big place in my movie love and heart. Um, so, yeah. Did you not know that? Uh-uh. I could have sworn I told you that. Yeah. No, it's Wizard of Oz and this. Wait till we watch Chicago. <laughs> we shall see. Um, so this is I, I keep telling you too how much I love this film, but surprisingly, this is only my second time having seen it. The first being in 2016, and I fell asleep halfway through it. And I have a reason because that was the first day back at school and I was super, super tired. But I loved it anyway, and I loved it this time around. Um, like you said, Catherine Deneuve is amazing in this, as is Nino Castelnuovo. And the mother also in this. I really like her, Anne Verdon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful film. Like you said, the color palette is bright and vibrant. The entire ending sequence with the snow is yes. just like a snow fantasy. And there's one shot in particular in this film 
And it's with the song, I Will Wait For You. Um, when Guy is leaving, they're in a bar together, the normal one that they normally hang out at. They're both embracing one another, but the camera just comes and it just basically zooms in so quickly on them. And it's such like a cinematic moment, like the like an epic cinematic moment. Like you're mm -hmm. watching some sort of three hour romantic drama where these two lovers are going to find each other eventually but it's so beautiful and that song is so good and that's like the one song i can distinguish because it was nominated yeah but it's like it's it's the most important song in that whole movie but, and then toby's never seen it oh yes this is my first time seeing it um i mean yeah i have to agree it's a very beautiful movie and i really liked it too um the last scene like you were mentioning we watched it twice because it's just so good. Oh yeah, we did, didn't yeah, we? we? Yeah, because it's like the pullout shot from seeing the the gas station and the camera just going and the music swells. Yeah, I'm like, we got to watch that again. Right. Um, I I'm not a big fan of like seeing through kind of things, but it, um, overall, I really liked it. It was just there's really great performances, like you said, Brett. The production design is really nice, and the color palette is like my perfect i don't know like what i love that just that color palette is like one of my favorites like the, yeah more pale not pale but you know what i mean like the pastelish the pastel color yeah pastel yeah yep definitely and you can definitely see the inspiration for la la land in here yes i i feel like i can see that too and i feel like this is like got more oomph than la la land i think it's more like it takes La La Land, like La La Land takes it and it's sort of like a watered down like love story version of this. Cause this, I feel like I feel more connection between the two uh, characters than I do in La La Land. Mm. And it's, a yeah. Plus I, mean, I can see how this is more realistic. Yes. Because yeah. it's, it's like, I don't know if you are coming back from war, if we will ever see one another again. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think if you took out the the musical aspect this would be a really realistic movie um i i mean I, i'm i love that the musical aspect is in there but yeah uh yeah the connection to la la land is is yeah i think you could definitely see the influences with the way it's shot the colors but also the way it ends narratively um we talked about la la land in our last episode our, our 2016 episode actually and talked about how that one kind of ends spoiler alert with them not ending up together. And this is kind of the same way, but it, it ends up. Okay. It's not a sad ending by any means. Um, you both talked about that final scene and I, I want to get like a, a poster, just like a, a still of that scene and just like hang it up on my wall because it's that gorgeous. And I, I would never think that a shot of a gas station would be that beautiful, but it is. Uh, yeah. So this is also really interesting structured. It, it's in three parts and it has titles for all three and it spans from like 1957 to 63. So you can place it in history in, you know, in France there. Um, and Jacques to me, it's just so interesting to me. I recently bought his, his box set from Criterion. I've only seen this and the young girls of Roquefort, um, which is pretty similar, but definitely not as good. Interesting thing about that is that like the, the beginning scene of, of Roquefort is definitely inspiration for the beginning scene of La La Land. So you can see inspirations there too. But yeah, I love it. Um, 
this did get nominated for one Oscar in 1964, which was Best Foreign Language Film. And then a year later in 1965, it got nominated for Original Screenplay, Song, Score, and Score Adaptation. They had like two score categories back then, which is really weird. But yeah, very deserving of all of them. I, I think the score is fantastic because it has to work in a movie like this. If the score doesn't work, the movie doesn't work in my opinion. So it's great. It's definitely one of the, um, it's a surprising film that you wouldn't think works watching a entirely sung through in French mm-hmm. as a, a primarily English speaking person. And yet it does work on like all levels. Yeah. Cause even I'm like, how the hell did they do this? Like, was there a rehearsal process to all of this? How are they getting the beats down so perfectly to the music? Mm-hmm. You know? And I do know that I- I'm pretty sure for at least Deneuve and um, Castel Nuovo, they were dubbed. Um, I'm pretty sure they did not do their own singing here. So, but, but yeah, st- I-, I don't know. How do they pull it off? To get the, like to get the lip singing down then. Yeah. Yeah. Like, gosh, that, that might even be more impressive. Um, but, and especially when I, we've obviously talked about Les Mis, that's an example where it does not work. And so, yeah, I'm glad it worked out here. Perfect. Any further thoughts on our final film there? I believe this is on HBO Max. Oh. If anybody has HBO Max out there or Criterion, because it's on Criterion as well. Yeah, I can see the yeah HBO Max is listed here. So yeah, check it out there. Perfect. I will say, if you are a Criterion collector... This is a great one. You can buy this one separately from the box set if you want to, too. So that's what I have. Yeah, it's so good. All right. So that is our last film. So now we can jump into our honorable slash dishonorable mentions. And so, as always, we'll start from the top. Feel free to provide some input on any of these that you prefer. First one we have listed here is The Best Man. Good political film. We watched it actually the day before election 2020. Oh, all yeah, right. really gets in, really gets into like how the parties will pick who their nominee will be. Yes. Interesting. That was one I really wanted to get to. And I will say there's a lot of these that I didn't get to because I was really bad about watching a lot of these for this episode, but that sounds interesting. Uh, The next one is Black God, White Devil, which is from Brazil. I watched this like four years ago for that uh, yearly movie challenge. Remember that? Yeah, it's, I wasn't a huge fan, but it's very interesting, very experimental and kind of disturbing too. So Uh, next we have Blood and Black Lace. It is a Mario Bava film. I watched it for Zay. It it was, it was fine. It's a, it's what do you call it, like Italian giallo films? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but yeah, it's a horror film. Yeah. Next we have Dead Ringer. Oh yes, B- Betty Davis. She plays um, twins, um, and it's pretty great. I mean, Betty like uh, is always great. Like I don't know, yeah. it's a good. Just yeah, I haven't seen it in a while though, so I don't really mem- remember a lot of the plot. Interesting. It is another psycho bitty situation, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Betty Davis says twins. You, you had me there. So, 
next we have fail safe, which we actually talked about a little bit when we talked about Dr. Strange love. I think it's great. Christian, I, I know you think it's great. And Toby. Yes. I also like loved it. Yeah. Really good. Henry Fonda in that one as well. Uh, next we have father goose. Yay. Cary Grant and Leslie Caron. They're on a island. She's stranded with a group of girl students and he's there to patrol Japanese uh, bombers in World War II. And it's a comedy. The more, I, I don't know, the first, first time we watched it, I was like, eh, it's fine, I don't like it. But as I go on and think about it, it's like, I enjoyed it. I'd see it again. Nice. I mean, Cary Grant. Right, it's Cary mm. Grant. He's enjoyable. Yeah. Next we have A Fistful of Dollars, which is the first in Sergio Leone's... Uh, Man with No Name trilogy starring Clint Eastwood. Hmm. And I don't. I don't know how it. Fit. I, I. I know the good, the bad, and the ugly is better, but I haven't seen the second one. So, but it's good. Uh, next, we have Kisses for My President. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched this, uh, and actually, TCM showed this the day before the 2016 election. Yes, because it is about the first female president of the united states well we know how that went and like toby said it is truly an awful film because she and fred mcmurray is in this i don't know who's the president though but she gets pregnant and instead of saying i'm going to carry this baby and still be your president she says you know what i can't balance motherhood and the presidency so i'm going to just give it over to the vice yeah it ain't worth it it ain't worth watching i just wanted to point it out because it's a really weird movie (laughs) Good to know. Next one we have here is The Last Man on Earth. Yes, it's with Vincent Price, and it's uh, basically the I Am Legend plot. Yeah, it's kind of weird, though. Oh, interesting. If you watch on Amazon, it's colorized, and the color was awful. Yeah, it made it look like it was daytime all the time, and it was like... (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. If you want to watch something, obviously watch I Am Legend, but also The Omega Man is a, a bit more... Yeah. Okay. Next, we have one that I didn't get to, but I, God, I'm mad at myself for not getting to it, and that is Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie. It's it's not one of his better, but it's good. I mean, there's you could there's elements of, of Hitchcock in there, you know, the twist and yeah. great gowns, gotcha. beautiful gowns, All right. good hair, beautiful hair. <laughs> Bruce Dern is also in it. Wow. Okay. Uh, next, we have a, a pretty relevant film this weekend is Mothra versus Godzilla. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> Mothra sees Godzilla and is like, hey, buddy, fuck you. And she gets first billing. <laughs> yeah, she gets first billing in this. So, oh, true. Uh, next, we have The Naked Kiss. Really liked this one myself. Yeah. Yes. Very uh, shocking. Very. Like, you don't think this is from 1964. Oh. It's very gritty. You know what it reminded me of? Um, Cage. Do you remember we watched Cage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's oh. that grittiness of, like, uh, women can be badass and also have, like, their secret histories. Yeah. Interesting. And this one's on HBO Max, surprisingly. So it's oh. definitely worth a watch. Because, like Toby said, for 64, the plot of it and some of the content of it is, yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, next one we have here is The Night of the Iguana, which was directed by John Huston, I believe. 
Yeah, we didn't get to watch it, unfortunately, but I've seen it in the past. And yeah, it's super dramatic. That's all I remember of it. All right. Next one we've got is Nothing But a Man, which I adore. I know you two weren't didn't like it quite as much, but it, it's it's one of those really it, it was a film with a, a nearly all black cast um, starring Ivan Dixon. Um, I first watched in, in film school and I, I love it. I think it's great. So that one's worth checking out. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next, we have the Pink Panther, which I think was actually released in some places in 63, but received an Oscar nom this year it's for the score it's 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 how do i want to put this it's not as good as you would be led to think mm. yeah i mean it's the uh peter seller stuff with the inspectors hilarious everything else is like yeah oh, gotcha uh next we have the pink fink uh pink panther short from that year yes short. It's so good. I love this one. And it won, I believe, Best Animated Short. Oh, yeah. So I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. You've seen it because I've made you see it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really good. Yeah. I used to love watching the Pink Panther on Boomerang. And it was just like the score over and over and over again as he does stuff. That one. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next, we have The Pumpkin Eater. You know what? We watched this so long ago for the beginning of this. I don't even remember what it's about but I didn't like it. No, I don't either. And Bancroft, though, had a nomination from it. Okay. Oh, Peter Finch, too. James Mason. Hey, our guy James. Oh, did somebody say my name? It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, we have uh, the Rankin-Bass short film, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Masterpiece. Love it. I mean. Santa is the biggest dickhead in that movie. He really is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is one I, I wanted to watch, but I just couldn't do it because it, it's not the Christmas season and I need to watch it next Christmas or something, but it's Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. I've seen it before on TCM because TCM shows it sometimes. But we definitely will watch it for Christmas because, again, this is we're, we're in April. Ain't no time for a Christmas movie. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, next is Seven Up, which is the first in the Up series documentaries. Um, if you know, if you haven't heard of it, it's really fascinating. Um, they they basically catch up with this group of people from every seven years and then make a documentary about them. So this is the very first one that Michael Apted did not direct this one, but he directed most of them, and he actually passed away like a few months ago. Um, so. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I mean, I really want to watch this. I hadn't even thought about it, but there is a Simpsons episode based on it. Really? Yeah. yeah. Where they catch up with the character. Yeah, like Marge and Homer and stuff every seven years. Yeah. I've seen the first three and then 56 up and 63 up is out now somewhere. It, it's not available to rent yet, but I want to see it too. So they're up to 63. Yeah, I definitely want to watch this. Uh, next we have Sex and the Single Girl. Oh, who's in this? Natalie Wood is in this. You just, I didn't like it because I don't remember it much. Like Natalie Wood, Tony Curtis, and then Henry Fonda trying to do comedy. It don't work. He's in it. Yeah, it don't work. Interesting. Uh, next, we have A Shot in the Dark, another Inspector Clouseau film. I didn't get to see it, but 
I hear that it is the better of the Pink Panther films. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, oh gosh, the tomb of Ligia. Ligia. Yeah. Yes. It's like a really, really good Vincent Price film. Really good. Like one of my favorites of him. Hmm. Awesome. Our next one here is Top Copy. Top Copy. Which you've seen, Toby. Yes, I don't. For Peter Ustinov. Yeah, it's been a while. Though. I don't really remember it enough to say something. Our next one here is The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which I watched for this. Debbie Reynolds is in it. it, it it's fun. I, I think that it's really well shot. But there is the Molly Brown house is still here in Denver somewhere, and it's a museum. So I do want to go check it out at some point. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, next, we have The Visit. Okay, a film that nobody but me has probably ever heard of on this podcast, but is with Ingrid Bergman and Anthony Quinn. And she comes back to town to get revenge on the man who jilted her. Oh. Yes, and it is a very hard film to find. I just happened to stumble upon it a few years ago on some random channel, and it's really good. And there's a musical also based on it. But no, it is really good. If I ever find it again, I will let you all know and you can see it. All right. Next is What a Way to Go! Exclamation point. I don't remember this movie much. Um, Shirley MacLaine is in it and has, when I say the, the definitions of great gowns, beautiful gowns, they're really great gowns, beautiful gowns in this. Like the colors of them, they're vibrant. She's gorgeous in them. That's what I remember the most. But also the opening scene is she's walking down because one of her husbands has died and they accidentally let go of the coffin and or the casket. Yeah, and the casket comes like going down the stairs, yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at the cast here. Holy crap. Shirley MacLaine, Paul Newman, Robert Mitchum, Dean Martin, Gene Kelly, Dick Van Dyke. Wow. It's an all-star cast. So the final one we have listed here is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Yet another one that the Sika directed starring Sophia Loren and Marcelo Mastroianni. I, I think it was actually released there in 1963, but it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film this year. And one. And one, yeah. So I didn't think it was quite as good. It, it was definitely my least favorite of the Desika films I've seen, but it still has its qualities for sure. All right. So earlier this week, Christian uh, put out a tweet uh, from the Gilded Films account asking some folks what their favorite films from 1964 are. And we got a lot of responses, which is really awesome. So uh, we heard from Zeta Short, um, at Zeta underscore Short on Twitter, um, whose favorite film is from that year is The Pumpkin Eater. Uh, heard from Kinney at It's Kinney Again, who likes Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Marnie, Second Single Girl, Unsinkable Molly Brown, and What a Way to Go. Good friend Zay tweeted us as well, and their favorites are Marriage Italian Style, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Straight Jacket and Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is funny because we selected all of those before I even knew that those were their favorite movies from that year. So, um, our friend from college, Mike at the Lavin Rant, said Woman in the Dunes, which I really wanted to watch, but I didn't get to it. Uh, Doctor Strange Love and Quaidon. Uh, with Quaidon, I want to see, but I want to see that towards like Halloween because it's uh, supposed to be a really good Japanese horror film. Yeah, nice. 
chance at how do you all said Goldfinger and the Naked Kiss. Um, Renard in Bansale at Blue Fox 94 said a hard day's night. Uh, Dan Leibarger, who's actually at Dan Leibarger, who is on uh, Can't Sleep Film Critics Circle with Christian, said Dr. Strangelove. Which I can understand that because when I see him at uh, film screenings, he has a Dr. Strangelove shirt. <laughs> nice. Uh, Sam Meltzer at Sam the Parasite said Mary Poppins and Zorba the Greek. Uh, Fritz at Fritz and Oscars said My Fair Lady. Um, the Oscar Real Podcasts said My Fair Lady and Dr. Strangelove. Uh, the Best Pictures Podcast at Best Pictures Pod said Dr. Strangelove as well. And Reflections in the Golden Eye at T. Fage um, said The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Hmm. So yeah, it's always kind of fun to see what folks like. A lot of these we did watch. Some of them we did not. So thanks for folks who responded to those. And if you haven't, respond to our next one. Um, Because these are kind of fun to look at. All right. What do we say? Are we ready for our personal awards? Yes. Yes. All right. Let's go ahead and start with adapted screenplay. Uh, I will kick us off here. I hope all of these are adapted this time. Uh, at number five, I have Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Number four, I have Failsafe. Number three, Marriage Italian Style. Number two, Mary Poppins. And my number one is Dr. Strange Love. Mm. Great lines. Great lines, great plot, great lines. Toby, let's go to you next. What do you have going from five up to one? Five up to one. Goldfinger, Dr. Strangelove, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, My Fair Lady, and my winner is Mary Poppins. All right, Hmm. Christian. (laughs) Number five, I got Goldfinger. Number four, Marriage Italian Style. Three, Where It Belongs, Dr. Strangelove. Two, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and one, Mary Poppins. Because taking that book and turning it into that film was a miracle. See, if I read the book, maybe I'd change my mind. All right, let's go on to best original screenplay. Uh, for mine, and I, I, I couldn't tell if this one was original or adapted or not because they're three separate stories. I'm going to put it in original, so I have a fifth. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Number four, I have Straight Jacket. Number three, I have A Hard Day's Night. Number two, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And number one, I have Nothing But a Man. I figured you would. <laughs> it's kind of an upset because I love umbrellas. Toby, take us away on yours. Original, I have Father Goose, The Best Man, Straight Jacket. The Umbrellas of Shoreborg, and my number one winner is The Naked Kiss. Oh. All right. Christian? Uh, number five, I have Nothing But a Man. I mean, I did like it. And it was, what was it? Between that and The Hard Day's Night, sue me. Yeah, there weren't and many number, originals. And number four, I have The Naked Kiss. Number three, Father Goose, which Father Goose did win the original screenplay this year mm-hmm. at the Oscars. And number two, I have Straight Jacket, and my winner is The Umbrellas of Shoreborg. Ooh, very nice. Three different winners there. Awesome. All right, so now let's go on to best supporting performance. Uh, and I, I do have 10 here. Number 10, I have Gert Fruba. I think that's how his name is pronounced from Goldfinger. 
Number nine, I have Wilfred Brambell from A Hard Day's Nights. Number eight, I have Marielle Perry from Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Number seven, Agnes Moorhead for Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Number six, I have Lila Kadrova for Zorba the Greek. Number five, I have David Tomlinson for Mary Poppins. Number four, I have Abby Lincoln for Nothing But a Man. Number three, Sterling Hayden for Dr. Strangelove. Number two, Olivia de Havilland for Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And my number one is the great Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins. Oh, you're supporting with him. Okay. I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. Toby, what do you got? Okay. And my number 10, I have Desmond, was it Ewan? Yeah. For Goldfinger. Stanley Holloway, uh, My Fair Lady. Gladys Cooper, My Fair Lady. There's a lot of pairs here. Bet, uh, Betty Brosnan from The Naked Kiss. Michael Dante from The Naked Kiss. Uh, Glennis Johns from Mary Poppins. David Tomlinson from Mary Poppins. Agnes Moorhead from Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Olivia de Havilland from Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and my winner for supporting is Diane Baker for Straight Jacket. Hmm. All right, my number 10 was Brett number 10, so Gert Frobe for Goldfinger. My number nine was Anne Vernon for The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, who plays the mother. Number eight, I got Slim Pickens for Dr. Yes. Strange Love. Number seven, Diane Baker for Straight Jacket. At number six, I have Larry Hagman in Failsafe. He's the interpreter with uh, Henry Fonda. And I don't know, he, it's a simple role, but it's really good. Yeah. Number five, I got Agnes Moorhead. And number four, Olivia de Havilland, both for Hush Hush. And number three, because I can do this, I have Karen Doltris and Matthew Garber from Mary Poppins, The right. Chill. Yes. At number two, I have George C. Scott for Dr. Strangelove. And my winner is David Tomlinson for Mary Poppins. Three different winners again. I, I'm enjoying this. Wow. All right. So moving on to best lead performer. This was extremely tough for me. Uh, at number 10, I have Marcello Mastroianni for Marriage Italian Style. Number nine, I have Peter O'Toole for Beckett. Number eight, I have Betty Davis for Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Number seven, Catherine Deneuve for The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Number six, Joan Crawford for Straight Jacket. Number five, Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove. Number four, Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek. What can I say? Number three, I have Ivan Dixon for Nothing But a Man. <sighs> it's extremely difficult. Number two, I have Sophia Loren for marriage Italian style. And number one, I remain with Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins. No Audrey. Yeah, no Audrey or Rex or Rex. I, I, yeah. Toby, what do you got? At number 10, I have Audrey for My Fair Lady. And then uh, number nine, I have Betty Davis for Dead Ringer. Number eight, I have Sophia Loren for marriage Italian style. Number seven, I have Constance Tower for The Naked Kiss. At number six, I have Catherine, Catherine Deneuve. Deneuve for the Umbrellas of Shoreborg. Number five, I have Joan Crawford for Straight Jacket. Four, I have Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins. Three, I have Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady. Two, I have Betty Davis for Hush Hush. And my winner is Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins. 
All right. My number 10 is going to be Joan for Straight Jacket and then Betty for Sweet Charlotte. Wow. Okay. I, I got to stop you because I was worried when I said them solo on mine, I was worried I was going to get looks from you. But now I understand why I didn't because, yeah. Okay. For what? I don't know. I, I figured me having Betty and Joan, you know, not in my top five. I don't know. Oh, I mean, this is a good year for acting. It is. It is. Um, my number eight and number seven both come from the same film. At number eight is Nino Castanovo, and seven is Catherine Deneuve for Umbrellas. Number six, Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins. So I went leading. Did you? Yes. Go, yeah, yeah. So we both went leading for him. Uh, number five, Peter Sellers for Strange Love. Four, Henry Fonda for Failsafe. So I really liked his performance in that. Number three, Rex Harrison, My Fair Lady. Number two, Sophia Loren for Marriage Italian Style. And my God, finally a winner. It's Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins. We agree. We agree. It's iconic. Yeah. Henry Fonda's my number 11. I had to, that was tough to take him off too. So it wasn't until yesterday when we watched Marriage Italian Style, but Audrey was on mine. Mm. Yeah. All right. So now we've got best director or penultimate category. At number five, I have Vittorio De Sica for Marriage Italian Style. Number four, I have Sidney Lumet for Failsafe. Number three, Stanley Kubrick for Dr. Strangelove. Number two, I have Robert Stevenson for Mary Poppins. And my winner is Jacques Demy for The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So for mine, I have at five, William Castle for Straight Jacket. Four, I have uh, Samuel Fuller for uh, The Naked Kiss. Three, I have Guy Hamilton for Goldfinger. Two, I have uh, Robert Stevenson, Mary Poppins, and my winner is George Cukor for My Fair Lady. All right, so my number five is Robert Stevenson for Mary Poppins. George Cukor, number four for My Fair Lady. Stanley Kubrick for Dr. Strangelove at three. My number two, I know, right? My number two is Jacques Demy for The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And my number one, because I thought he did a really great job with this, and the editing is a phenomenal in this film, but it is Sidney Lumet for Failsafe. Yeah. Like the 11 o'clock hour winner there. If you need like a, a claustrophobic movie to be really good from like the 50s to the 80s, call Sidney Lumet. You know, with this and 12 Angry Men, like unreal. All right. So, wow. Three different winners there too. Let's see what happens in best picture. Um, all right. So my number 10, I have a fistful of dollars. Number nine, I have straight jacket. Number eight, I have hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. <laughs> uh, number seven, I have fail safe. Number six, marriage Italian style. Number five, a hard day's night. Number four, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Number three, I have Nothing But a Man. Number two, Mary Poppins. And number one, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And yet, I don't know why I was like, what is it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> My turn. Uh, yeah, yeah. Don't be taking some. At 10, I have Dr. Strangelove, and I have nine, The Best Man, and then My Fair Lady, The Umbrellas of Shoreborg, Dead Ringer, The Naked Kiss, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Goldfinger, Straight Jacket, and my winner is Mary Poppins. 
Oh, I I forgot to put Goldfinger in mind. No, Goldfinger is definitely on my list. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take off fistful of dollars. I was over scrambling because I hadn't put the naked kiss in mind. And I was like, wait a minute. You ended up really liking that one. Yes. Yes. And yeah. how dare you forget Goldfinger? Goldfinger would be probably my, my number six or seven. Wow. I don't know why I didn't have that in there. Shameful. I know. Sorry. All right. And I really need to watch The Naked Kiss. That sounds so good. All right. Christian, take us away. My number 10 is Dr. Strangelove. My number nine is Failsafe. At eight, we got My Fair Lady. Seven, Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Number six, Marriage Italian Style. And number five, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Because I have class. <laughs> At number four, Goldfinger. Because I didn't forget about it. At number three, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Two straight jacket, and my winner is the one, the only, that Funkin' Nanny, Mary Poppins. All right. Very nice. Yeah, what, what a good year. I, I love the 60s. 60s cinema is, is really awesome. Um, really enjoyed the years we've covered from them from that so far. Um, so, yeah, thanks as always for listening as we count down and go over some great movies from this year. Um, as always, you know, if you could rate your reviews, subscribe on Apple podcasts or, uh, wherever you listen, uh, I thought we have a one-star rating. Now, if you're going to give us a one-star rating, just, just, just don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Somebody give us a one-star, but anyway, whatever, uh, names. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, if you're gonna give us a one-star, just, just, just don't do anything. Uh, but yeah. Um, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. um, and at gildedfilms.com. Thanks as always to Joshua Arnoldi for uh, putting together our theme music. And you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, we're pretty much everywhere out there. Um, next time, we will be joined by Maddie, who you heard on our 2001 episode last year. And she will be back for our 2002 episode. Um, she's, she's pretty much got a claim on the three Lord of the Rings years. So... There's a lot of good movies that year as well. Looking forward to checking out. So be sure to tune in then. And Toby, any thanks once again for coming on and joining us again. Uh, any final thoughts from you? I mean, I always love talking about movies and especially movies I love. So look forward to being back if I can. Perfect. Christian, any final thoughts from you? None, except the next one is going to be amazing because it's my one of my favorite movies ever. This is true. And we uh, will look forward to having you tune in then. See ya. See ya.